Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. By the time we had a diagnosis, I don't think we really could have that conversation with her in a way that she would comprehend. And the thought of having that conversation over and over and over with someone is just too heartbreaking to even consider. What if the writer is attempting to create a story where nothing much happens, where people don't change? More reflection of the real world. Nothing happens in the world? Are you out of your fucking mind? Welcome to A Theory of Mind, a podcast about brains, minds, and the lived-in experience of change from your host, me, author and biographer Ben McKelvey. Each week, I'll interview someone about their brain and their life, or perhaps in some instances, somebody else's brain and life. This week, in an episode that concentrates on memory, we have both. You just heard television presenter and writer Stephanie Ben Dixon, and for the bulk of the episode, I'll be talking to Steph about an instance of memory stolen. But before that, I'd like to introduce you to someone who has a surplus of memory. Harry woke with a plan fully formed in his mind, as though his sleeping brain... sleeping brain had been working on it all night. He got up dressed in the pale dawn light, left the dormitory without waking Ron, and went down into the deserted um, common room. That's right. This is Queensland woman Rebecca Sharrock, the only person in Australia who has been diagnosed with highly superior autobiographical memory, or HSAM. It's a condition that means Rebecca can remember almost every day of her life in great autobiographical detail. Chapter 15, Bow Batons and Durm Strang. That's 100% correct. Even though I stumbled a little bit. No, you did great. Right now we're playing something of a game. Um, I randomly read a sentence from any of the pages of a Harry Potter book and she finishes the rest of the the page. Which was different as possible from life in the Privet Drive. The Dursleys liked everything neat and ordered. The Weasley's house bursted the strange and unexpected. It's believed that Rebecca is the only person in the world who can do this. But amazingly, Professor James McGaw, the famed neurobiologist who discovered HSAM, and who you'll hear from later, says this talent is not directly related to Rebecca's HSAM, but her obsessive-compulsive disorder, or perhaps her autism, both conditions that Rebecca manages alongside her HSAM. And nearly everything... Dumbledore had told and shown... And I'd like to apologise for the audio here. We did this interview over the phone during COVID and we know the audio's not great. I woke up in the morning, had my breakfast. I didn't know it was a significant day at all. And then after... This is Rebecca talking about a birthday. And not only a birthday, her first birthday. She sat and dressed that she had either bought or made, I don't know. Hmm. But when she was trying to put it on me, I didn't like it because the satin was was static, especially because my birthday's in summer when it's humid. May the 2nd, 2011. On May the 2nd, 2011, was a Sunday. Sorry, no, a Monday. Sorry, and this May is Rebecca talking about what seems Monday. to be a random date. 
But it was a date that I chose because it was the day that Osama bin Laden was killed. And I knew that event would cross over with Rebecca's day and her memory of that day. Then my parents' room and I saw a news story and it was about Osama bin Laden had been captured and it was headline news and it was breaking news. But the Rebecca is a wonderful and very interesting person and I hope that at some point I'll do a full episode with her when I can get her in the studio. But in this episode, I just wanted to introduce to you the idea of HSAM and let you ponder the possibilities of the condition. Now, let me ask Dr. James McGaw a question you may be asking yourself. And again, the fidelity is not great here, so I apologise. We're only a minute away from smooth audio sailing here, so persevere if you can. Now, it seems to me that people who've been diagnosed with HSAM, there's one of two things that may be happening to them. One is that they are, in a superior way, um, retaining memories, or they have a superiority for accessing these memories, or is it, is it a combination of, of both? Do you know which distinct which it might be? No, I don't, and, and you, you put your finger on the, on the real issue. That is the issue. My, uh, my guess is access that information is in our brains, and we don't have an ability ordinarily to access it. Now, think about this for a moment. There's a a phenomenon known as tip-of-the-tongue memory, and we all have it. I ask you, uh, you know, what was the the name of that, uh, what was the date of that uh, very famous rugby game in uh, 2018, for example? And you say, oh, my God, I just I can't remember that. And then we go on with another conversation. And then later today, it pops into your head. That's tip of the tongue memory. What that says is that when I ask you the question, it put your brain to work. The brain continued to work even when you were no longer paying attention to it. And finally, your brain says, I found it. We all have that experience, the tip of the tongue memory. Um, what we found more recently in, in a study in collaboration with a group in, uh, in Italy, in Rome, is that the, the brains of subjects who have this ability act differently when retrieving information. And to me, that suggests that the answer to the disability might lie not in the storing of the information, See, it seems forgetting is an important part of living because with forgetting can come prioritisation, personalisation and ultimately good storytelling about yourself. If we remember the day where we bought a new fridge just as clearly as the day we gave birth to our first child, then how may that affect our relationship with our child or with our relationship with the world around us where almost everybody else is prioritising, forgetting and building a story of themselves? Like I said, at some point, I will do a more comprehensive episode about HSAM and memory. But I just wanted to get you thinking about it as we move into my interview with Stephanie Ben Dixon. Now, Steph has been a friend for a number of years. We work together in Australia's video game industry. And that's something we talk about a little at the top of this episode before getting into the meat and potatoes of this episode. After talking to Rebecca and Dr. McGaw about a surplus of memory, Steph and I now talk about her mother, Wendy, and how her memories were slowly taken from her by Alzheimer's disease. Now, this isn't a relentlessly dark episode, but towards the end, there are some emotional moments. Uh, and we do talk about the passing of Stephanie's mum. So if you know that things like this may trigger you, then please be forewarned. 
If you want to contact the show, the best way is through my Instagram, which is at Benny Mook, B-E-N-N-Y-M-C-K. And without further ado, here's Stephanie Ben Dixon. So we're going to be talking quite a lot about memories. So I wanted to talk about a specific memory, um, and it was my memory of meeting you, which was probably sort of like 10 or 12 years ago <laughs> um, at a, a video game event that I don't remember. But I do remember this sort of like shock of blonde hair. I remember this sort of my chemical romance attitude. <laughs> <laughs> You're in a room full of dudes, um, you know, as was uh, events in the games industry. Um, and you had just started uh, at Good Game, the ABC uh, video game television show. Can you tell me a little bit about, about that, Steph, and that memory, if you, if you remember it at all? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, that time at but least. But I met a lot of people very quickly, uh, so... <laughs> a lot of people who already knew each other as well. Yeah, yeah. It, it, was, it was simultaneously a dream come true and a nightmare because, I, you know, I was a fan of this, of this show... Um, I'd never actively pursued, pursued a career in video games because I kind of understood that to be you were a programmer and that was it. But I loved this show and when the opportunity came up to take that role, I was so excited. I just didn't realise I was going to be taking the role of someone who was fired <laughs> and was very public about the fact that they were fired and mm. had a really um, intense fan base. So, um, yeah, I, I, I got to know the sort of misogyny side of things pretty quickly when people were photoshopping my face onto lots of porn. <laughs> they were doing that because you, um, just for a little bit of background, there was a guy called Junglist who was doing the show with a guy called Barjo and it was, you know, two guys talking about video games. Yeah. Guys, I think they were both in the late 20s or early 30s, you know. Um, and then uh, the producers wanted something different and they did, they did like a big... Well, the, Nationwide they, search? They or? didn't really want something different. It was when they were launching the kids' channel, they were going to make a kids' version of the show. Yeah. And I was coming on board to help them host that and then kind of be a sometime, you know, appearance on Good Games. So it was going to be the three of us to start with. But uh, I think Junglist had a kind of altercation with management and they decided to pull him back from an on-screen role and I would fill that spot instead. Yeah. Um, and then I think he didn't agree with that and he ended up, leaving altogether. So, but from, from, from the audience's perspective, they replaced the ABC replaced their favourite male host with a girl to, as some kind of, um, you know, equality thing or maybe for sex appeal or something like that, which yeah. was the weirdest um, thing to imagine the ABC doing. <laughs> and you, you were mindful of that straight away because um, in my memory, I mean, I wasn't, you know, like I just did some freelance work in, in the video games industry, so I wasn't working full-time and wasn't as immersed as a lot of people. But I completely missed all that. But but straight away, did you start copying abuse? Yeah, before I even started, actually. So when I was announced, it, people were trying to go through all of my old accounts and just and dox me online. Like, it was really intense. Before I even had done my first episode, people were like, let's destroy this chick, you know. <laughs> it was really intense, but... Um, Janet Gator, who is the series producer of, of Good Game, um, I was very fortunate to have a woman running that show. Mm. She gave me the best advice I ever had um, because was one day I was I'd turned up to work and was in the makeup room and the poor makeup artist couldn't put makeup on me because I was just bawling my eyes out. And she came and she came in and she said, "Listen, you don't have to prove anything to anyone. Just let your work speak for you, and they'll come around." And it was just absolutely true. I just kind of s kept doing what I was doing and, and loved the show and tried to sort of show as much passion for games as I had. 
and over time, you know, it, the the positive voices drowned up the ne- drowned out the negative ones. And I started to get really cool letters from young girls and stuff saying it's so great to see, you know, a, a woman on the show talking about video games. It, like it gave them permission to express their love for it in ways that they felt maybe they couldn't before because it was a very kind of male-focused industry. Mm. How, how old were you? I think I was 26 when I started or 27. Right, so... No, or to, no, maybe 25 even. Yeah, it was, you it was two, 2009, young. I think, when I started. Mm. So presumably um, at that age you didn't, you, you didn't have the confidence that you would have now just in yourself and you'd be like, okay, you know, the... Um, the public perception is me, of me is going to be an aspect, but the other aspect is going to be my personal understanding of myself. Yeah. Yeah, I think I am. Um, I think coming in off the back of all of that, I felt afraid to show any part of my personality other than a, a person who is obsessed with video games because um, it, it would somehow... Uh, any um, interest in anything outside of that would, like, kind of negate my legitimacy <laughs> in the industry. So it was very, I felt very cautious of, of how I presented myself. But at the same time, I also wanted people to, to listen to what I was saying and not focus on anything that I was wearing or the fact that I was a girl. And it was really hard to, to kind of uh, refocus people away from that because it was, I don't know, it's just inherently different when it's new. <laughs> So who did you share this with? You know, uh, you were having this sort of like, you know, um, this moment of crisis. Would you share it with your parents, friends? Would you share it with Bajo, who was the other, the other host? Yeah, Bajo and I were pretty close. So he was always really great. Um, but I think probably Janet was my, was my closest sort of confidant and all that kind of stuff. She, mm. was really, she was really great and great to talk to. And she came from a news and current affairs background. So her commitment to the show was very much on... Um, critique and review and, and making sure that the show embodied the spirit of video games and, uh, and internet culture but um, stayed, you know, hardline to the, the, the core of it being a review show mm. and, and the integrity behind that. So she was really, really great. Let's go back a little bit, back to when you were a kid and when you were very young and when you first started playing video games. Uh, what were your first sort of video game experiences and, and, and hosting experiences? You know, you, you ended up becoming a, a, a public person. What, where, what was the beginning of that trajectory? My parents were, were quite strict and very anti-video games, so we never had any consoles or anything um, growing up. But I was always pretty imaginative as a person I read a lot of fantasy fiction. I loved escapism and other worlds and stuff like that. So um, I was drawn to the idea of video games without really having any access to them outside of friends' houses. So what I managed to get my hands on was, um, you know, once I started using our sort of home computer a lot more, I found something called a MUD, which is an acronym for multi-user dungeon, which were big in the 80s and mm. it's basically like a text-based role-playing game where you are almost collectively writing a story with other people, role-playing characters, a bit like Dungeons and Dragons, I suppose. And because it was entirely text-based, I managed to get away with it for quite a while without my parents figuring out that it was a game that I was playing. Um, but I got quite heavily addicted to it and I was playing online with other people and at that time I would have been about 15, 16. I was going through a pretty intense goth phase Mm. and I was awkward as a teenager. I was struggling sort of fitting into social circles at school 
And that all just seemed too hard, whereas in this world I was this really respected warrior elf woman <laughs> who was, like, bartering trade deals with other nations and <laughs> slaying dragons and stuff. So it was much more of a um, an appealing way to live. <laughs> Did you have an offline group of friends who were doing this as well or these were purely online friends? No, I, I, I had a, a good friend of mine who played my elf sister in the game um so we played it together and then a couple of other nerdy girls at school I sort of uh, introduced it to as well and we would all be in the computer lab at lunchtime and that was kind of my undoing because then um you know the school cottoned on to what was happening and contacted my parents and they banned me from playing the game and so then I would have to get up late at night after they'd gone to bed to play it and because it was dial-up modem I had to take a pillow into the room and like smother the modem (laughs) as it as it screeched and wailed (laughs) so that they wouldn't wake up and then I would play all night and then pass out at school and and the end of all of that was they put me into some kind of you know counseling to to deal with video game addiction. Yeah, that's funny because you're <laughs> almost 10 years younger than me, but this is the first time that you felt old to me. <laughs> this story about this modem. And, um, so why was your mum so averse to, to video games or your parents? I think, I, I don't know, they're, they're both European and they came from a very different upbringing. My mum my was born in Indonesia. She's Dutch. There was a Dutch colony in Indonesia and, mm. and her dad worked tea plantations there and then she lived in Liberia for a while working – my grandpa worked on um, rubber plantations there. Wow. My dad was like – he was born in South America um, because there was a big Danish mig- – I'm trying to say that it sounds very exotic, but my parents are very white. <laughs> <laughs> they were, they were uh, colonial overlords. Yes, <laughs> yeah. So my, my family uh, background is Danish, but my, my dad was born and grew up in Argentina. Yeah. And um, was like in the army there and, and all kinds of stuff. So their their whole worldview was. Hold on, your dad was in the in the Danish army or in the Argentinian no, army? No, the Argentinian army. Really? Oh, maybe Chile, actually. Right. Chile, because he lived there for a while. Interesting. And then they kind of bailed when the government started to go down a sort of communist path that was a bit scary for them. And yeah, it was super gnarly. Yeah. Um, so how did your parents meet? They both were flight attendants for Qantas <laughs> because Qantas liked to recruit people who were bilingual. Yeah. And my mum's first language was Dutch and dad's was Spanish. And um, my mum studied nursing for a while but then decided she wanted to see the world. So she took a, a job as a flight attendant and that's yeah. where she met dad. That's amazing. So they'd had these incredible uh, globe-trotting lives. Yeah. And, and then I they settled down and had a kid or had a couple of kids mm-hmm. and were like, okay, now we're straight and, right, straight and narrow and straight down the line with you as well. Well, yeah, but I think they just saw video games and television as, as just something that would rot your brain. Yeah, you know, right. they wanted – and fair enough, I, I get it. They wanted me to be outside and, and yeah. I think I was pretty, like, withdrawn in the sense that I was very focused on – stuff that didn't exist yeah yeah so yeah they just they just never they just never got on board with the idea of video games my dad still doesn't he's he still doesn't understand what i do my dad watches a lot of sky news and i think his ultimate goal for me is to be a sky news presenter yeah i'm not sure that's gonna happen (laughs) (laughs) he sends me things i mean you've got the blonde hair you have the look you know you have the blue eyes this girl's done very well she's gone from strength to strength you'd you'd learn a lot from her step and i'm like all right dad (laughs) so how did they feel about you becoming part of this video game television show I think I think they didn't really understand it, but they were happy that I was finding success in it. Yeah, right. They liked that I was working for the ABC, but I think he, yeah, my dad saw it as a, hopefully as a stepping stone, stone to something else. Did did they understand the strength of the community? Because Good Game and Spawn Point, the best thing about those shows were the community. The community was was wonderful and strong and vibrant. Yeah, no. I mean, after you got over the hurdle of you know 
doxing and rape threats. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I don't think um, they, you know, they tried to watch the show but couldn't follow it because it's, it's very fast. It was very fast paced and talked about in a language that they didn't understand. Yeah, it's very fluorescent. And, yeah, yeah, and and not knowing anything about video games or, or that world or how it's advanced, I don't think they had any sort of interest in it. They were, they were proud of me and happy for me, but I don't think they will ever understand any any of what I do. Yeah. <laughs> um, did you have a good relationship with your parents throughout? I mean, obviously you made this transition at some point from being someone who was not allowed to play any video games yeah. to somebody who was obsessed about playing video games and enjoyed the culture. Um, I, th- I would say for, for the most part, yes, but I was... Um, an awful teenager, like the worst. <laughs> Please regale us with some tales of terrible stuff. Yeah. Um, I think I just – I my dad calls it the tube where you go into a tube for between 13 and 21. Yeah, right. And it's just awful and then you come out the other side okay. But um, I'm sure it's a Spanish expression that doesn't translate well. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> But, um, I'm, I'm getting a sense of what he's saying. Yeah, I think I just felt – I was just very angry all the time. I felt no one understood me and I felt like I wanted so much but I didn't want to have to do anything for it. Yeah. I would sneak out all the time, you know. I tried all different things that I shouldn't have, like dodgy crowds of people. And, and then when I went through this goth phase, it was very much like peak 90s goth. So lots – like I would buy, you know, spiked collars from the pet shop and stuff and I dyed my hair black and – and was getting into witchcraft and stuff like that. I saw The Craft, that 90s sort of cult film, The Craft, and I just wanted my life to be that. Yeah, right. It's funny when you <laughs> describe it, though, because you're almost describing it from the perspective of you now or from your parents. You're not describing it as as you living it. it you know, it's sort of like you're talking about, you know, t- how it would be seen from the outside. I think I just feel really guilty about how awful I was to them. Like, they, they worked so hard. You know, they, my dad moved here. He never went to uni or anything. Yeah. He just kind of worked his way up through the airline industry to try and provide a life for us. And my mum worked part-time in nursing and, and stuff like that. And I had a really privileged upbringing and I was just really ungrateful <laughs> during that whole phase. So I talk about it now with the kind of sympathy of understanding a teenage point of view, mm. but also um, a lot of embarrassment, you know, because of how I made life so difficult for my poor family. Did you did you get to the point where you felt like you had to reconcile the wrongs and be attentive and did you even uh, sit down and have a chat to your parents and go, okay, look, I'm sorry? <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. And I have a really great relationship with my dad now, um, political differences aside, yeah, I think. Yeah. yeah. So I, I wanted to talk to you about your mum. So your mum, uh, she was given a diagnosis of Alzheimer's eventually, was she? Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about... Um, when you first sort of leaned on to the fact that that your mum was having cognitive issues or if it did manifest itself as cognitive issues? Yeah, it's. I think it's so hard um, at the start because dementia of any kind presents really differently from person to person and in the early stages you never connect those dots. Looking back on it now, there's a lot of things that I can go, oh, I, I know why that happened or I know where that was, but at the time it didn't. it didn't feel that way. Mum um, worked um, as a nurse uh, for a lot of her life when she stopped. Um, she studied nursing, then was a flight attendant for a while, and then she went back to nursing. And when I was sort of going through primary school and high school, she took a job working part-time at a, at a retirement village. Um, 
And she was great. She was always a very nurturing, caring person. So she was really well suited to that job. She mm. was just, you know, she she loved looking after people. And um, yeah, she was lovely that way. But she started to become, I suppose, she she was, I always found it difficult to, this is a really weird way to say that, I always found it difficult to buy her Christmas parent presents because she didn't have any interests of her own. Mm. She might have when I was younger, um, but in terms of friends and things, she started to only do stuff that dad did. She would only go somewhere when he went somewhere. She became very kind of attached to the idea of only leaving the house when it felt safe to her with him. She stopped driving anywhere outside of our immediate suburb. Like she'd go to the shops and the train station and that was about it. And this was before you had an understanding of what was going on. Yeah, right. yeah. Then she started, she said she didn't like driving at night. Like she said she had some problem with her eyesight and things like that. Mm. Um, and because mum worked in hospitals, she was like fastidiously clean and was constantly tidying things and, you know, she would make beds with hospital corners, the whole shebang. Mm. And we sort of started to notice that she would start, things would start piling up in weird places and stuff like that. But we kind of just thought she was kind of maybe suffering from some sort of a depression maybe because she, I don't know, (laughs) a dumb idea of empty nest sort of syndrome as we were kind of moving, uh, you know, out and, and doing different things and, I mean, this is what everybody does. Everybody looks at their piece of somebody else's life and they say, okay, how do I relate to that? I have left. Maybe she's having a problem with that. But, yeah. But at what, what age was she then? She would have been in her early to mid-50s. Right. So still very young. Still very young, yeah. yeah. Um, Did you talk to your dad about this at all? At that time before you actually knew what was going on? No. No. I think we just... Yeah, I don't know. I think it, this was it, something you discussed to your sister, discussed with your sister. Yeah, but not with not with dad. Hmm. And and at that and none of us thought that anything was really wrong at that point. It was more just that she was kind of in a bit of a funk, maybe. Yeah. And there were periods where it was fine, and, and we didn't think anything of it. Um, I think the first time we really sort of clued into the idea that something was wrong was when she lost her job, and. She came home just really distraught one day and was like, "They've, you know, they're all against me there." And my dad was like, "What do you mean they're all against you?" And she goes, "Well, you know, I've made a few mistakes, but, um, you know, everyone makes mistakes, and they're just really ganging up on me." And she'd worked there for like twelve years or something. Mm. So my dad went and spoke to them, and it turns out that she had been forgetting some pretty sh- crucial medication rounds and things for yeah. elderly residents and stuff. And it had happened a number of times, and this kind of was the final straw that led them to sort of letting her go. And she got really flustered and embarrassed by this idea and, and sort of persisted with the fact that, it, that people were against her and, mm. and it wasn't her fault. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. But paranoia is, 
you know, 100% a symptom of, you know, a, a neurological decline, you yeah. know, be it CTE, be it, you know, Alzheimer's, something like that. For sure, for sure. Then it was around then that she started to, uh, we'd sort of have repeat conversations, which happens, again, it happens to everyone. The, the amount of times I forget that I've had a conversation with someone and you repeat yourself and they're like, oh, yeah, you told me this before. And oh, yeah. oh, yeah, of course. Claire is so sick of it. <laughs> <laughs> But so it it even that even at that point it didn't seem like none of us were were reaching to any kind of cognitive issue. Yeah. At one point, I think Dad um, checked her into like a retreat facility for people suffering from anxiety and yeah. stuff like that because he was like maybe this is something that she's going through. So sorry, just just quickly. Um, so the relationship that you have with your dad is good, but it's you don't have this sort of. Um, emotional fluency where when no. there is something happening to your mum, you can't be like, all right, let's have a chat about this. It's, no. it's just not the relationship that he's you a, have. He's a very kind of stoic yep. person who I would, I've never had like an open communication with my parents at yep. all. I don't think they, they know how to do that. But you do with your sister? Yes. That's yeah. good. Yeah. And so I, I, I'm assuming that at that time – there were almost there was this sort of like almost generational barrier where you and your sister were a unit, your dad and your mum were a unit, and there was some interaction between the two, but it wasn't fluency all the way between all four of you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, the first time that I got like really worried was when my sister told us she was all she was she told us all she was pregnant for the first time. We all went over to her house. We had a really nice dinner. We we're all there as a family. Mm. And, you know, she told us all we're expecting our first baby. It was a super lovely moment. And then two days later I was out shopping with mum and we walked past the baby section and she picked up a a little onesie and she's like, this would be so nice for Karen. And then she goes, I don't know if I was supposed to tell you that. She wanted to tell us all together. Hmm. And I was like, what do you mean? And she goes, that she's pregnant. And I was like, no, she told us all together at dinner, like two nights ago, we were all there. And she goes, oh, right, yeah. And I was like, Hmm. weird. And then we walked around the shops a little bit more and I would say 30 minutes later we had the exact same conversation. And she did the same thing. She picked up a baby thing. She goes, this would be so nice for Karen. And then she kind of was like, oh, I don't know if I was supposed to say that Hmm. because she hasn't told you yet. And I I was just like, this is like deja vu, like a glitch in the matrix. It was the exact same conversation. She said the same thing. I had the same thing. And I was looking, I was searching in her face for some kind of recognition that not only had, yeah, or not only had, had that event happened, but that we talked about it 30 minutes prior. And she, she became very good at covering up memory issues. Yeah. Like a, def, like a, as a defensive thing. Because she didn't want to suffer embarrassment was the, was the primary concern for her. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you know, she might have started to feel like something was wrong mm. but couldn't express that at all. Did you start to have a little bit of panic? Yeah. That was the first time I was, I think deep down I was like, I know what this is. Mm. Oh, but so you were thinking Alzheimer's? For sure. For sure. From that moment, yes. Had you had you sort of unconsciously suspected that before, do you think? I don't think so. Mm. I should have mentioned as well. The other thing is that my mum has type 1 diabetes or she had type 1 diabetes. And so often if she had low blood sugar and things like that, that could affect things yeah. cognitively. Yeah. Now now they said there is actually a pretty strong link between diabetes and, and Alzheimer's right. and the kind of a degenerative effect on the brain over time. But, um, yeah, it, it, I think there were, it was easy to kind of blame those things on, on other 
factors. Yeah. And also, you know, if you're in your 20s at the time, people in their 50s look a little bit old. You know, and they feel a little bit old. Yeah. So a cognitive yeah. decline is sort of appropriate for them. But yeah, from yeah. a pathological perspective, it's not appropriate. Yeah. And I think, you know, we, yeah, forgetting things is something that we all do. And I'm such a space cadet in general. I forget yeah. stuff all the time. I used yeah. to, in primary school, I used to ride my bike to school and forget that I'd ridden it <laughs> and then walk home and then not realise until two weeks later when I was like, where's my bike? Yeah. <laughs> Still at school in the bike rack. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit different though because, um, you know, the way that we retain memories is through the strength of the emotion when the thing actually happens. And so the reason why it would have been so jarring for you was it was this big emotional moment for, yeah. for, for you and for your mum and, and she'd forgotten it so quickly. Yeah, yeah. that Yeah. Something like that is not something that you forget. No. Um, so that's when I kind of knew. So at that point I was talking to my sister about it, she sort of started to tell me that there were a few things that she had noticed as well and we both went to Dad to talk to Dad about it. Dad was obviously super worried but was in complete denial. Right. You sit down with him and you say, you you explain what had been happening Mm. and your concerns and your specific concerns, you know, thinking that perhaps she had Alzheimer's. Mm. And what is his response? How can he deny that? I think... I think he was aware of the the fact that it was a strong possibility, but maybe it's not so much denial, but he refused to accept it. Mm. So we took her to get some cognitive tests and that was a really difficult process because, I th- you know, Al- Alzheimer's doesn't really show up on a lot of brain scans majority of the time. Mm. So you kind of just have to do cognitive testing and, and... And you need a baseline for that as well. Yeah, and the problem is she was so flustered and nervous and, um, you know, anxious during these tests that it was really difficult for the doctor to definitively say she's doing poorly because of a, of a brain issue or she's doing poorly because she feels so much pressure in the situation and she's so flustered mm. that she can't, you know, bring the answers up quickly enough. So we did th- – I remember going back and having those cognitive tests at least three times, you know, six months apart, and each time we didn't really get a definitive answer from anyone. And so because of that, I think Dad was like, there's still hope. Mm. And I could see he would start making her these, like, blueberry smoothies because he'd read somewhere that blueberries yeah. were great for brain function, like, yeah. you know, things like that. And, and you know, he was like, well, we should try the anxiety facility again, you know, things that I, I felt like were redundant mm. because I knew – um, but he was he wasn't ready to accept what I think we were all thinking. And there wasn't much point in you bursting the bubble of him at that point when you hadn't a solid diagnosis yet, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think also he just he was gonna he was gonna do what he was gonna do, and mm. that was you know everything possible <coughs> to to hopefully show that this was not the worst case scenario that yeah. that we were all dreading. And when did you finally get the the diagnosis or when did she finally get the diagnosis that she did have Alzheimer's? Um, I think it it got to a point where it became pretty obvious to us because her decline tend to happen in um, cycles. She would be fine for six months and then we'd have a six-month period where she would deteriorate really quickly. Mm. She, um, you know, she'd come home from the supermarket with like 14 avocados or something like that and not realise or, or she'd call us because she'd forgotten whether she'd parked the car or the pin number to her key card 
and that kind of stuff was happy, started to happen on a daily basis. And did the embarrassment continue when, when those things happened, even though she had a diagnosis or perhaps she didn't have a diagnosis yet, but you knew that something was going on and you, uh, she knew that you knew that something was going on, did she still feel embarrassment? Yes, and would never explicitly say that she was sick. Hmm. She said, I'm just working on, on, on myself and my self-esteem and trying to get myself better. Yep. She would say things like that. Dad would never explicitly say to her, you know, this is what's wrong with you. It was... Yeah. <laughs> it was weird. It was, like, it was like an elephant in the room that we just didn't talk about. And I don't know if it was we were trying to protect her or if it was just too, too hard. Or you were just trying to protect reality. You were trying to... Yeah. You know, not acknowledging this future that was going to be very difficult for everybody. Yeah. And the other thing that was really stressful was that Dad had had his own share of um, health issues. He'd uh, suffered a heart attack and um, had what, not like a um, not a pacemaker but like a, a defibrillator implanted to start your heart again. Hmm. I forget what they're called, but it's like a little mini defibrillator that starts your heart if it ever stops. Um, and the stress was a real risk factor. The doctor that we spoke to um, about mum was also aware of dad's situation and was mm. like, this is a, a, like a real concern if things start to get stressful for him. You, know, you also need to prioritise his health as well. And you didn't think it was going to be useful for you or her to sit down and say, okay, this is the situation that we're in? I think if I had been older, I would have. How old were you? 26, 27. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I didn't, yeah. I think I think I just took my dad's lead and I think we were all just trying to protect her. Yeah. Do you think know. maybe a part of it as well is, you know, there was this sort of manners barrier that had existed in your life in your family life, you know, as there is in a lot of European families, that's mm. the case with mine as well. Yeah. Um, and you you just don't talk about the things that could potentially be embarrassing and difficult and, you know, and you just sort of, you know, soldier on. Was there a little bit of that going on? So much of that. And I feel like now now in hindsight I, I try to have so much more of an open communication with Dad. I feel more confident talking about stuff like that. But at the time... They were still my parents and they were dealing with this together and we were just trying to support them in whatever way we could. But that just didn't include a f- sort of frank, heartfelt conversation about fears and hopes and mm. and how we were all going to deal with it. My mm. sister was better at that stuff. But again, I think it's my sister's seven years older than me, so I think she was in the position that I'm in now where I feel like I would have approached it differently. Do you think your sister was, was in a better position as well because she was going through this, uh, you know... Uh, both ends of the cycle of life you know she was she had a kid you know kids just have to be adhered to you can't you know wallow in your sorrow the whole time you you kind of have to look after the baby you know so so she had the the full spectrum but you you know you were just Mm. there with your mum's experience I think that was part of it but I think also um you know my sister and I are, are similar in many ways but also kind of different like I think she'll be the next like matriarch of our broader family yeah if that makes sense you know she's the organizer. Christmas dinner happens at her house it totally does yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah so I think she, I, I think she just has a, a better capacity to to broach those things and be frank with people yeah whereas I you know 
there's there was lingering elements of moody teenager in me where I just didn't want to talk to anyone and couldn't couldn't handle that conversations and definitely not with my dad. Yeah. Do you have any regret about that now? Do you do you kind of wish that you could have gone back and done things a little bit differently? And if you do have the regret, would the regret be for you or for her benefit? I think for the benefit of all of us, I wish that we'd had a conversation about it that would have led to acceptance a lot earlier because it would have saved... I wish we'd gotten to that place of acceptance so that we could have just fought with mum less because... So even after the diagnosis, there were still arguments? And it's so difficult because she has moments of lucidity but she fights. She would, she would fight you on so many things. And when, you're, and when you're frustrated and you're tired and you're just trying to help her and she's screaming at you, mm. you know, it's hard not to be reactive in that moment. And you have good days and bad days but there were times when you can't help but be frustrated. But I think that if we had sort of started the process of acceptance earlier then we could have just diffused those situations yeah. and... And when those things happened, you could have had, you know, those things could have happened once rather than then happening over and over again. You go, okay, this is why this happened. You know, you're in this position, I'm mm. in this position, you know, and so we create this conflict. But it sounds like maybe it's it's something that lingered and went on a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, definitely did. And there are also resources out there that we, you know, I've since discovered um, that we could have utilised to make that easier, I think, like as what? well. Um, so since mum's passing, I have done some work with Dementia Australia and <laughs> there is a kind of wonderful crossover in them as an organisation and what I do and that they've kind of delved really wonderfully into technology. So they've developed a bunch of apps, um, VR games and different um, interactive things that can help either people with dementia or aged care workers or families that are living with someone that has dementia. And that would have just been really useful. <laughs> and just, you know, from an information perspective, I think, you know, we took the diagnosis from the doctor and I'm sure that my dad had some information that was given to him. Hmm. But beyond that, we were kind of just trying to still understand it. I, I think the, the motor function stuff I didn't – I was just not aware of until we sort of started to see it getting worse. Yeah. And when I went and I visited Dementia Australia in, in Melbourne – they had set up a whole room in a very specific way to show you how you can make life easier for someone because um, contrast and, and light and colour becomes really difficult for them. The reason why mum was having trouble sitting in a chair is that sh the depth perception is gone and she couldn't sort of distinguish the chair from the floor. So she would sort of try and grab onto it and then sort of put her bum down next to it. Right. Um, so they show you that you can get a, a two-tone coloured chair that has a very clear seat and then a very contrasting colour for the rest of it. Yep. Uh, same with a toilet seat because most toilets are white on a white bathroom mm. floor and that's difficult. Um, like, you know, things like rugs on the floor can appear to be a hole in the ground for someone who's, you know, losing that visual connection. Um, you know, you can just put big, you know, just guiding her to the bathroom, you can put big pictures of things on doors so that she, she can kind of find out where to go. Um, and they also, they, yeah, they developed this really incredible VR game that, that s simulates what that experience is like for someone who's dealing with the um, visual changes that are happening within the brain so that you can get a kind of POV perspective of what that's like. 
and then and you walk through a, a, a virtual house mm. and you can see things distorting and colours melding together and it gives you a, a, a perspective and, and greater understanding of, of what that person's going through because otherwise how would you know? Yeah. All I see is that mum is kind of falling over a bit when she's trying to sit in a chair but I don't really know why. Yeah. And now I, I have this understanding of what that's like. And so for aged care workers or, or for people who are, who are you know, living with someone who has dementia, that's invaluable advice and, and an invaluable tool to be able to make use of. You, you said that you didn't talk to your mum about this, about specifically how she was feeling, you know, about the diagnosis and the situation that she was in. But did you get a sense of, of what she was trying to do? Was she just trying to get through moment to moment, day, day by day? Or was she sort of stealing herself for this future that she was going to have? I think she was just getting... By that point, she didn't live in a normal realm yep. of communication. You know, she was just laughing when she thought it was appropriate to laugh and sort of making her way around any room. So it was almost like there was this um, sort of surface consciousness where, you know, like when you're not really paying attention to something but you kind of you, – you're getting these sort of inputs and it's almost like a knee-jerk reaction that you're kind of yeah. like, this is, this, is what, this is how I act socially. By the time we had a diagnosis, I don't think we, we really could have that conversation with her in a way that she would comprehend or retain that information even. Yeah. And, and the thought of having that conversation over and over and over with someone is just too heartbreaking to even consider. Yeah. So you course. just try and make life as pleasant for her as possible and try not to get frustrated when she gets angry yeah. and frustrated with you. And did you, have, did you have any problem going and spending time with her or did you have to sort of force yourself to do it a little bit? <laughs> When she was at home with dad, it was fine. It's when we the, the whole process of getting her into an aged care facility was one of the worst things I've ever been through. Yeah, right. The the aged care system in Australia is awful because it's so privatized. She, yeah, it was awful. She was just like, please don't send me here. Mm. Like I don't want to. I just want to go home. And I just like, I just couldn't handle it. Yeah, I couldn't. Ha- it was awful. And then um, I would try to visit her once a week, but I, I hated going there. I hated going there because every time I saw her, she was worse. And I was just waiting for the day that I'd walk in and she wouldn't recognise me at all. Mm. You know, I, I would see her and she would just be kind of wandering around talking to herself. And then I would say, I would look at her and sometimes I wouldn't say anything first because I wanted to see if she would recognise me and I would see a sort of blankness. And then I'd say, hi, mum. And then her face would light up. Mm. But it was like she needed that prompt. Yeah. If I just walked into the room, she didn't know who I was so she needed that sense memory of your the, the voice or the, or the situation yeah or, yeah and I would take her for walks along the beach and stuff like that and it became like I would try to because your most recent memories go first so she could still speak fluent Dutch it was a crazy thing you know she was still she still fluently speak Dutch like a whole other language yeah. but she couldn't tell you what she had for lunch so did she have strong memories of her childhood and things like that so she could tell you about Indonesia? So I tried to latch on to those things when I spent time with her. I'd be like, remember when, when um, you know, you were a kid and you were living in Africa, like what was that like? And she would try and sort of say a few things about that or I would see recognition in her face um, or, I, you know, I would talk about, you know, the Dutch cookies she used to make at Christmas and stuff yeah. like that and she would remember those things and she would be able to respond to them. But otherwise, I was trying to show her photos of what I was doing in life and I was trying to tell her things. But I don't know that she was really taking any of it in. Mm. She would just make noises. 
of that's of more appropriate responses to the conversation. Would you try and lead her to these sort of happy, safe memories, you know, to places where you knew if she did have some sort of recognition that she would just sort of live in this happy place for a moment? Yeah. Because it's it's a very one-sided conversation, right? Yeah. She, she could never contribute to the conversation by that point. You know, she couldn't... Um, she couldn't really she couldn't really speak in coherent sentences about stuff that had happened. She could just sort of recall phrases of of conversations yeah did did watching this happen you know it's like um it's like a flower that's sort of losing these petals and you know and at, at what point is it not a flower did 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 it make you think about? you know, what makes up a person, what makes up a person's cognition, you know, what, what is your mum now, what was she when, when, you, when you knew her before, she had this malady, did, did you, do you think about those types of things or did you think, think about those types of things then? Yeah, yeah I, I mentioned I had a friend whose dad passed away from dementia and, I, and when I spoke to him about it after his dad died, I was like, you know, um, this must be really hard for you and he said, my dad died a long time ago. Yeah. And I sort of always remembered that and that is 100% what it's like at the, at the end, you know. The person that she – that she, she she just became less and less Your herself. Mom. Yeah, mm. and, and towards the end it was just – I was going there because I felt like I should. Yeah. But I don't think she – and I think maybe in the moment she took some enjoyment out of me being there but, you know, she was becoming increasingly more vacant in her expression and – I could, once I couldn't take her for walks on the beach anymore because she started to become so distressed at the change of environment, just taking her outside, you know, and she couldn't walk properly. Um, that was when it was the worst because I didn't want to spend time with her in there because it yeah. was so awful. Yeah. Um, you spoke a little bit earlier about the fact that, uh, you know, after your mum did pass, your, your relationship with your dad changed a little bit. Um, so... You know, out of these situations, sometimes, you know, there, there can be this sort of, uh, you know, these moments of healing, but then also resilience in your life. And, you know, you understanding the ephemeral nature of life and, you know, seeing it in front of you, the fact that, you know, we don't live our lives forever. So sometimes you do realise what you actually want and what, 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 what you want to do with life. Was there any of these, this sort of positivity? Was there, did, did, it make, did it change your life in, in a positive way at all? Yeah, I think um, I think the the time that I spend with Dad now, I I feel like I have the the confidence to be more forthcoming in what I share with him and and how we converse, which I don't think I did then. I think I'm very similar to him in that we both found it hard in the same way and found it hard to talk about in the same way. But I now my biggest sad my greatest sadness is not being able to have an adult relationship with my mum because mm. she was my mum as a kid and she was a mum when I was an awful teenager, but she never got to I never got to ask her for advice or draw on her wisdom as an adult, you know, living my life and share what would have been the best, you know, I, I understand when people think of their mother they think about their childhood, but for me I would have much preferred to, you know, if I had to pick. <laughs> I would have loved to have shared my adult life with her because she lived such an, an amazing life herself that was so diverse and and interesting. And now she could have t- 
told you in full. Y- you yeah. Know, now, now that I have the adult perspective and interest and and um, and want desire to learn about all of that, yeah. um, you know, I, I can't. Well, the one thing that I did want to do before we before we left was um, I wanted you to talk a little bit about your mum before this malady took her over and the things that she loved and a little bit of her personality and, you know, so if you could just give us a little bit of, uh, of, of that and tell us about the things she loved. Um, I, think I, well, I think I mentioned that she's a very caring, nurturing person and that was absolutely, I would say, at the core of, of who she was. She loved to look after people. She loved to cook. My dad said she laughed like a kookaburra <laughs> and she did. <laughs> and when I th- hear kookaburras now, I still think of mum. Yeah. <laughs> She was. She had eyes that kind of like um, that creased a lot in the corners and were very twinkly, and a big beautiful smile. And she was very expressive. It was a very Dutch thing yeah. to be very um, expressive and animated the way she would talk. Um, and I, it's funny now to recognize ex- expressions and things in myself that I do, and even certain things that I say that I remember her saying that suddenly just pop up like as if they were dormant in me for ages and now that I'm reaching, reaching certain ages, um, I start to say things that she would say when, when I remember her, you know, from when I was a kid and stuff. Well, thank you so much for your time, Steph. I know it can be really difficult talking about this stuff but, um, you know, people who are going, this, going through these, these types of situations and they really kind of appreciate getting that, that, that sort of first-person knowledge of, of what it was like and, you know... You're still standing. (laughs) So congratulations. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Deb. That was Stephanie Ben Dixon talking about her mum, Wendy. If you or someone close to you is affected by dementia, then there is help at Dementia Australia. And their website is dementia.org.au. If you're not affected but you want to help anyway, perhaps you were touched by this episode, then go to that website and there's a link to donate. That's it this week and until next week, follow your bliss and also, if you still can, go hug your mum. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com